welcome to a special ABI podcast looking at a few of the recommendations contained in the final report of the ABI Commission on Consumer Bankruptcy, which was aimed at improving the bankruptcy system for all stakeholders. Specifically, we'll be looking about the Commission's recommendations on remedies for discharge violation, attorney competency, remedying lawyer, um, lawyer misconduct, and other related issues. My name is Rudy Cerrone. I'm a member of McGlinchey Stafford PLLC in its New Orleans offices, and I was one of the commissioners on the Consumer Commission. The commission was created by the ABI's Board of Directors at the end of 2016 and was charged with recommending changes that could be implemented within the consumer bankruptcy framework under the existing bankruptcy code. Uh, the commission was comprised of 22 commissioners and was assisted by three committees looking at specific areas to improve the consumer bankruptcy system. The commission and its committees were broadly represented, representative, both geographically and by area of practice. It included judges, academics, creditors, lawyers in the home mortgage, automotive, credit card, and student loan areas, and debtors, lawyers, and trustees in both Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 spaces. This was a collective law reform project, and the final report does not necessarily reflect the views of any individual commissioner or committee member, including today's panelists. And we all work by consensus wherever possible. No recommendation was adopted without at least two-thirds support of the commission. Most recommendations were adopted unanimously. The final report, containing all of the Commission's recommendations, was issued on April 10, 2019, and is available at consumercommission.abi.org. Joining me in the discussions today are three of my colleagues from the Commission, two Commissioners and an Advisory Committee member. Uh, Tara Toomey is currently the of counsel of the National Consumer Law Center and is the Executive Director for the National Consumer Bankruptcy Rights Center in San Jose, California. She is a frequent lecturer and is a contributing author of several books published by the National Consumer Law Center, including Home Foreclosures and Bankruptcy Basics. Ricardo Kilpatrick is the President of Kilpatrick & Associates PC in Auburn Hills, Michigan. He specializes in creditors' rights and insolvency law, focusing on corporate, consumer, and commercial litigation, and bankruptcy, real property remedies for creditors, real property transactions, and general corporate consulting. Ricardo was the past president of the ABI and has served on the board of directors for the American College of Bankruptcy. Karen Cordry is the Bankruptcy and Special Issues Counsel for the National Association of Attorneys General in Washington, D.C., she served as an advisory member on the Commission's Committee on Chapter 7. Since coming to NAAG in 1992, Karen has worked to assist state agencies to take a more active role in enforcing state regulatory policies and collecting financial obligations in bankruptcy proceedings. Now, with those introductions, um, I'd like to uh, turn our discussion to several of the Commission's recommendations uh, on the issue of remedies for bankruptcy uh, discharge first. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Karen. 
Hi. Uh, glad to uh, join this group. I'll uh, start with the first part of our discussion today. It does have to do with those commission recommendations, but before we get started on that, I'm going to just give a brief overview of Taggart versus Lorenzen, which the Supreme Court decided on June 3rd. Since that directly ruled on the appropriate standard for determining if the discharge injunction has been violated under current law. And I will note my own biases here for this discussion. I did work with the states on an amicus brief uh, that supported the court's eventual result in Taggart. And I worked in the contempt litigation section of a federal agency for six years before I came to NAAG, which, by the way, we just pronounce it NAG, which has <laughs> a lot of... Uh, hmm fun things one can do with the term. But in any case, uh, having worked in contempt for that time, I'm well aware of what a potent weapon it could be. So uh, we did welcome the Supreme Court's view that it should apply that contempt uh, remedy in the same way that generally occurs outside of bankruptcy. It, the court began in Taggart by noting that the debtor had gotten a standard Chapter 7 discharge that essentially says, you get what Section 727 gives you, period, and says nothing really more than that. And then you have Section 524 says that one-sentence document is then an injunction that voids any violative actions. And the problem is, this is a kind of classic example of what, outside of bankruptcy, it's often referred to as a, quote, obey the law, unquote, type of injunctive order. And they're generally disfavored. And why? Well, because contempt is a powerful weapon, and it's normally only used after you've had a full trial and, and adjudication and you've gotten a detailed court order based on findings in a particular case, and then you have a violation of that order, which is being remedied by contempt. But the discharge injunction really has none of that. It's just a statute with a uh, complicated initial scope and a huge set of exceptions and then says, obey it. Uh, so the Supreme Court rejected the view that you should just have a strict liability sort of standard for contempt sanctions. Instead, uh, it said, look, if the defendant had, quote, fair ground for doubt, unquote, that its conduct was covered by the injunction, then contempt remedies were not appropriate. Uh, one thing I would note, that's not saying that the discharge injunction isn't violated. It's just saying contempt is not the appropriate remedy. In other words, you fix the violation, but you don't necessarily get all of the ancillary kinds of uh, penalties and attorney's fees and emotional damages and all those kinds of things that might be available under a, a contempt remedy. So assuming that is the current state of the law, the question is, should changes be made to that law? The Commission's recommendation, which did come out before Taggart, was that uh, there should be an equivalent created to the private right of action that currently exists for stay violations under Section 362K. Uh, in the discussion there, it says this would ensure that debtors wouldn't have to satisfy a higher standard applicable to contempt violations, it also argued this was desirable by making the discharge and state provisions consistent and that it was appropriate to do this because only the debtor would be in a position to enforce the discharge so it shouldn't have a heavier burden to do so. Uh, its other major recommendation was that there should be a mechanism established so that parties could obtain comfort orders as to the scope of the discharge and uh, that would allow them to come in in advance to the bankruptcy court and say, if I want to do X or Y, uh, will that violate the discharge injunction? And the uh, other piece of that proposal was that uh, such a uh, comfort order motion sh uh, proceeding should be done by motion rather than by adversary proceeding to make it simpler and cheaper for all sides. So that's basically what the recommendations were, and I think our discussion today is going to be how do those recommendations hold up after Taggart, and how would you actually go about implementing them? So I'll throw it back to you, Rudy. 
All right. Well, Rick, I know you represent uh, creditors who are often the uh, object of discharge injunction violation motions. Um, and you and, and both you and I were um, in, integrally involved in the formulation of the commission's uh, recommendation. Um, what do you think about the recommendation in light of Taggart? You know, the recommendation brings with it certainty. Uh, you know, we face a panoply of, of different types of actions taken by debtors in response to alleged discharge violations. You know, you, you and I have, we faced everything from class actions to, to individual cases where courts have allowed a private right of action almost. And the, the recommendation from the commission will, will at least settle that part of it. The impact of Taggart is to determine what the appropriate standard would be if indeed there is a violation. What has to be proven? You know, um, I like the standard articulated by the Supreme Court because it, it does take into account the broad, undefined nature of the injunction that's issued in bankruptcy, in, in, in a bankruptcy case. As Karen's already alluded to, in most instances when we're dealing with injunctions, the, 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 the injunction's carefully crafted to prohibit certain types of activity. Here we don't, here there are and have been claims of any and all sorts made uh, based upon various creditors' activity. Some, some of which would be difficult to defend, but others of which would be very easy to defend under the artic, art, standard articulated in Taggart. Again, my first concern is if we have this private right of action, what, what is the standard that's going to be utilized by the court to determine whether there is a violation of the discharge? And if it adopts, indeed, the standard articulated by the Supreme Court, then I have no problem with it. My second concern would be this comfort order. The ability to ask for a comfort order is, is a benefit. But as pointed out in Taggart, I do have a concern that it may multiply litigation in the federal court system. Rather than doing something and taking a chance, my clients are risk adverse in many instances. And they're going to go to the, to the courts on a frequent basis to determine whether or not the action that they're contemplating could create a problem for them. If you might recall, the um, the genesis of the comfort order uh, was as a result of uh, creditors who are um, mortgagees still under uh, a discharge loan where the debtor doesn't have any personal liability left, but the mortgagee would like to offer the debtor a reduced interest rate or some better terms um, and and that would be a long-term relationship that would continue between the debtor and the creditor. But the creditors are reluctant to do that because of the threat of a discharge violation. So um, it, it kind of arose out of uh, more than just one-off concerns, but, but uh, concerns that could be applied um, to maybe a program that a lender might have that it could offer to all of its discharged debtors who only have in-ram liability. Um, so the bigger dollars, bigger issues, I would see my clients taking advantage of, of a program like that. Um, but the one-off times, I, I, I might not have as much concern that the courts are going to get um, are going to get bogged down on it. Um, Tara, I'd, I'd be interested in your uh, viewpoint from the debtor side. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here real quick. And, and again, um, thanks for uh, having me be part of this conversation. Um, from my perspective, I think Taggart makes the committee's recommendation even more important. Um, Taggart really is looking at traditional precepts that apply to contempt and court-ordered injunctions. Uh, so I think that the idea of a, of a statutory requirement similar to 362K becomes even more important now because I think debtors arguably should have a meaningful way of enforcing that discharge injunction, which for them is probably the most important aspect of, of bankruptcy for consumer debtors. I agree with Ricardo that the issue that, um, that I don't think the commission really addressed is what is the standard even under a statutory violation for uh, what constitutes a violation and, and, and how do we look at uh, creditors' conduct uh, do we use this objective standard? Do we use this objective standard? I, I don't think the commission got that far in terms of, of uh, its recommendation, but obviously I think what what debtors would be looking for is, again, something similar to 362K, which uh, I, at least this far has been interpreted a little bit more like, um, like the discharge injunction had been in the 11th Circuit prior to Taggart. Um, it offers a, the opportunity to, for the debtor to recover attorney's fees. So I think certainly from a debtor's perspective, that, that's what we would like to see in, in terms of a, a private right of action. Moving away from the contempt piece, um, you can take out the criminal sanctions. I think um, Karen has expressed you know, that, that the power, powerful remedy in contempt has a, has a, a really broad scope in terms of its remedies. And so I think maybe a private right of action narrows those remedies, but um, but still something that allows debtors to enforce that discharge injunction. Karen, if and you can... Karen, um, yeah. Come, we'll, yeah, we'll come back around to you, so maybe we, we can wrap up our discussion on the uh, discharge uh, portion of our podcast. Right, and 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 we do have, you know, we sympathize with both sides there because the states typically are in there as creditors, but they also have a strong interest in protecting their own citizens who may be debtors in a case, and so forth. So, you know, I I can see both sides of this. I think the private right of action as a abstract matter is not necessarily a bad idea, but as Ricardo says, I think the real question is in the details, and as as Sarah has been pointing out. Uh, we would certainly be fairly strongly opposed to a strict liability standard, which is what was being argued for in Taggart. Um, there are too many instances where there is very reasonable bases for having differences of opinion about what is being done and to say that automatically every time there is a um, an action taken that, that, that somebody eventually three levels of courts down the road fines is a violation that automatically entitles the other party to all attorney's fees. You know, that that's problematic. The comfort order approach may be useful in terms of, of dealing with that. But again, that's not necessarily all that helpful to the debtors because the standard practice is when you litigate in bankruptcy court, you're not liable for the other side's fees unless you've done something like Rule 11 sanction kind of behavior and so forth. I mean, the the code right now is very clear that the only place where if you come to bankruptcy court and litigate an issue about discharge that you can be held liable in uh, for attorney's fees is with respect to Section 523A2, the fraud violations. It says if you litigate that and you lose as a creditor, you may be liable for attorney's fees, but only if your position wasn't substantially justified, which is pretty close to the Taggart standard. And even there, there's a uh, another caveat if, if 
if, if circumstances would make it inequitable or something like that. I forget the exact language. But uh, So that's the only provision right now for litigating in bankruptcy court and being held liable for attorney's fees. And if you went to a a standard where you go in there and you ask for a comfort order, but then somehow you you might be liable for the other side's fees automatically if you lost. That has you know major implications of its own right there. So I think there is some potential merit in these recommendations, but I think they're going to need a lot more fleshing out and a lot of thinking about unintended consequences before you decide where you go with them. Well, thank you. Thank you, all three of you, for uh, that discussion on the remedies for uh, discharge uh, violations that were in the committee's final, uh, the commission's, excuse me, final report. Um, I think it's time to, to go to our second set of topics, uh, deal with attorney competency and other related issues. And Tara has the lead on that. So, Tara, if you can introduce the issues, the recommendations, and uh, then we can get into our discussion. Sure. So I think we all agree that bankruptcy law promises fair and equitable treatment of creditors and a fresh start to debtors. Um, achieving uh, those goals often depends on the parties having effective legal counsel. And I think everybody would also agree that attorneys who don't provide competent service to their clients um, not only um, work to the detriment of their own clients, but to the system as a whole. And I think this continues to be a, a concern among the, the bankruptcy bar in general. I think the report details a number of cases um, demonstrating a lack of competence that are uh, very concerning to many of the professionals um, in, in the, the bankruptcy community. And so based on some of, of what the commission was, was seeing, there are four general recommendations um, regarding attorney competency and remedi remedying lawyer misconduct. Um, the first one, I think, is, is more vigorous use of existing disciplinary tools. We know that the courts have a number of tools available at their disposal, and uh, the recommendation was just that those tools be used more vigorously to ensure that attorneys provide competent service to their clients. The second recommendation was a creation of local disciplinary tribunals and procedures. In essence, the concern here was that the judge often is in the has to play the role of the investigator, the prosecutor, the jury, and the judge when it comes to attorney incompetence. Um, the idea of disciplinary tribunals comes from um, a couple of different districts. I believe the Northern District of California and possibly the Northern District of Illinois both have uh, separate bodies that, that look into disciplinary issues. So that was the second uh, the second recommendation. The third recommendation was to uh, recognize board certification in determining reasonable attorney's fees. And so while this may not seem to go directly to competency, the idea is that those that are board certified have um, have done more to ensure that they are competent um, and, and should be uh, compensated appropriately for that. So that was the third recommendation. And the fourth recommendation was that the um, administrative office, the AO, adopts uniform docketing and reporting uh, for disciplinary matters. And, and that was simply to, to be better able to keep track of, of disciplinary matters and make that information public. So so that's, that was kind of component one. Component two, um, which I'll get to in a minute, is, is stand-in counsel or appearance counsel. But I guess I would uh, turn it back to you, Rudy, to see if there were any further thoughts on this this intro, this, this first piece, which is um, these, these four recommendations. Yeah, I, I would I would turn it right back to uh, start with Rick. Um, 
for his comments from the from the cre- uh, creditor perspective. Gen- generally, I agree with the with the recommendations. The concern that I would have uh, adopting a body that would assist the court in doing the things that are contemplated under the recommendation creates some difficulty. Um, if you have local practitioners and others involved in these in this body that's created, are they really going to be proactive in policing the the the, the system and doing the things that are necessary to to bring about good conduct? I mean, you know, the old adage is that door swings both ways, and you know what goes around comes around. Do you create do you create bad will? By, by you know, if somebody engages in a minor infraction, they go in front of a local body. You part of that body. Do you create bad will that you suddenly have to live with? Because Rudy, you and I know that we deal with the sim- with the same people many, many, many times over. Oh, oh yes. Indeed. How often has a uh, have you, as a creditor's attorney, um, say uh, filed objections to fee applications of, of, of debtors' counsel that you're going to see in another case? Week after week after week, it just—I I can see your point there. And well, and the by the way, the, the the one that I think would probably bring about the best or the, the best result is this uh, listing of all disciplinary orders in a fashion that can be mm-hmm. searchable and can be found. Mm-hmm. Shaming, shaming is effective. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, it went out in the old day. It went out, and you know, it's rooted in antiquity, and it went out with with our modern with with feelings of you know with the modern concepts. But it it is an effective way of of bringing about conduct. People don't want to see their names uh, put in on a list of bad people. So I think right. that one has a lot of traction. It has a lot of potential viability to it. Well, Karen, do you have any thoughts on on um, on these issues? Well, of course, as I said, no state attorney person has ever done anything wrong, so I'm, I'm just coming at this from, from an outside perspective. But, uh, but, but certainly, in, in, in one sense, you know, uh, state people, they've got superiors, they've got higher-ups, the higher-ups are responsible to the outside world. So in many respects, you know, I, I won't say no one has ever done anything wrong, but there are, are some more some other additional uh, avenues for dealing with um, misconduct among uh, state counsel, but uh, um, that that may not be available uh, as much with the firm and so forth. But um, I, I do agree. I think there's some 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 value in the idea of an outside tribunal, but but there's a lot of potential. You have to figure out somebody who's really outside. It, it may just be the point you really need to go back to relying on the U.S. trustee and so forth, but even if they had a place that they could go to as opposed to just simply the judge himself having to be uh, judge, jury, and, and, and witness and so forth, um, I mean, that that's one of the things that I think uh, does have a lot of resonance there, that it, it's hard for a judge to really want to be the one to step out and, and do the whole process from accusation to determination. So um, if there's some place else you could go, and especially if there was, for instance, an initial confidential um, process if, if this wasn't a major, you know, in-court thing, if, if it could be done with some degree of privacy until there was a determination that there was a violation. And then, yes, all the shaming in the world um, can go on. I think that that could work, work with some uh, effectiveness. Okay. Well, Tara, any final thoughts on that part? And if, if not, uh, we can segue to the next issue. Yeah, I think I'll move on to, to, to stand-in counsel or appearance counsel. So um, so typically, stand-in counsel or appearance counsel is an attorney engaged by a party's attorney, 
but often doesn't have the authority to act on behalf of the client. So I think the commission report goes through a number of examples of, of when this happened. I think on both sides, um, both on creditors and, and debtor side, although it, it probably happens a little bit more on debtor side, but I think in, in numerous situations, um, we see uh, a parent's counsel appearing and but not being able to actually represent or, or have any authority to act on behalf of the client. So there were a number of recommendations on, on this piece. Um, the first was to develop best practices with respect to parent counsel. So, so here, um, interestingly, the idea was not to get get rid of appearance counsel altogether. Although I think some some may have favored that um, solution, but I think rather to really think about how to use appearance uh, counsel in an effective way, um, and and to ensure again um, competence in representation, and that the, the system is able to 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 move forward and, and work as it's supposed to work. So the first one again to develop some best practices with respect to appearance counsel. The second one was to use um, technology uh, and, and those tools that are available to us, such as video and telephonic hearings, that would allow uh, attorneys, especially where there is some distance between where the attorney might physically be located and the courthouse. Um, I think that may happen more out west than, than in the east, but um, nevertheless, um, I, I think where you have uh, long distances to get to hearings, and maybe you have a 15-minute hearing, maybe it's a routine matter, the question is, can we use technology, video, telephonic hearings to um, to uh, conduct those hearings and not have to have the attorney be present in the courtroom? Uh, the third um, is the use of, of negative notice procedures when appropriate and, and consent docket. So this, this combination of can we use negative notice procedures so that if nobody objects to some course of conduct, then that course of conduct will um, be permitted. And there are, there are certainly some, some traps. Um, in, in the negative notice process, but it is used fairly regularly in the in the bankruptcy world. And so the, the question was whether that whether there is room to expand some of this negative notice procedures. Um, and and then again, consent dockets would be uh, a place where the parties have basically agreed. Do you need do you need the attorneys to show up in person? to tell the court that they've agreed to some course of action, or, or can we develop a consent docket? I think some courts have probably already done that, but um, whether this could be uh, formalized a little bit more. So, uh, again, um, you, you may not have as much need for appearance counsel. So uh, this is a this is an area, I think, was, that was a, a hot topic um, and, and one that was certainly interesting to work on. Um, so those are the recommendations. I'll see if the other panelists have any comments. Rudy, turn it back over to you. Well, thank you, Tara. I, I just have one comment. I, you know, over the course of my uh, my career, um, I, I've seen uh, many courts in other other contexts, specifically the federal courts uh, here in Louisiana, um, have really done away with oral argument on motion practice. Um, and it's very rare that a matter will be uh, set for hearing, and it's only when the court, for the most part, when the court wants it. Uh, it seems to me bankruptcy courts are just the opposite, um, that virtually everything is set down for uh, a hearing, um, and probably there's some middle ground that can be um, that can be taken there. But I find it as a, a great training ground for younger lawyers. Um, they're, they're able to get up and, uh, and, and make appearances and make arguments uh, in court. Um, 
And so we use that um, pretty effectively with our younger lawyers. And I'd hate to see um, the uh, the hearing process get changed um, uh, as a result or as a negative consequence of what we're talking about here for standing counsel. So with that, um, uh, Rick, what what uh, what are your thoughts on the standing counsel issues? Appearance counsel is an issue on both sides, as Tara pointed out. Um, and we have had to, we as creditors have had to grapple with that for the last five years. Since the CFPBs come into existence, there's a compliance requirement um, that our clients have exercised, oversight, that, that they've required that we utilize when utilizing, when, when we decide to use appearance counsel, which has pretty much reduced the number of times that, that my firm personally uses appearance counsel. Uh, I agree with Tara wholeheartedly that the use of, of technology, that we could use technology in a more beneficial fashion to reduce the need to utilize appearance counsel, and that we should do so. Uh, the consent docket, by the way, Rudy, on the other hand, we here in Michigan, we had the highest volume of cases per judge in the country for a long, long time. And starting a number of years ago, we have the, the courts adopted all types of processes to expedite the motion dockets. And we have a consent docket. We have a negative notice process that has pretty much gone as far as you can without depriving somebody of due process. But it has worked relatively well uh, because your, your associates will still have those opportunities to argue, but they'll be arguing more substantive issues rather than some of the right. the, 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 the easier stuff that they, they get to argue now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen, you, your, your, your uh, constituents in your, in your group, uh, you know, they cover large swaths of area um, from one state to another. I can't imagine, uh, say, Texas or California, um, and, and not having the ability to use appearance counsel, but um, interested in your views on that. Well, it would be great if my uh, clients had money to pay appearance counsel, but just as they <laughs> rarely have money to pay travel expenses, there's not a whole lot in the budget to pay anybody outside of the state either. Um, we are a very collegial organization, so and I do maintain a list of bankruptcy contacts in every state. So there are times when someone would call up and ask me, do you have a contact in state X? And we might on an ad hoc basis have someone... Um, perhaps bring some papers to court, but it, it, it's not very common among the states. Uh, what we do uh, utilize with um, great um, appreciation and whenever we can do that is, is those technology methods. Um, uh, I, for instance, work with the, all of the states on tobacco issues along with one other council here, and we typically do any kind of bankruptcy work that comes up in any of the cases where the states are regulating one of the tobacco companies. Not... <laughs> Thankfully, none of the big tobacco companies have filed bankruptcy, but there have been a number of small cases and so forth. And we typically do all of it here from Washington, and we have just finished up a case out in New Mexico, for instance. And I don't think we ever went out to New Mexico, even though there were probably 20 hearings or more in which uh, matters were brought up. And the court there was very gracious about allowing us to appear by telephone. So I think that's a, that's a really major piece of this. And I think some courts do it routinely. Some courts um, have some suspicion towards it. I, I did read one case recently, one decision in which the court um, thought at least one party was definitely getting out of line, and that part of it was that 
uh, they were being allowed to do a lot of things by telephone, and that was making them um, feel a bit more venturesome about how uh, vexatious they could be in, in their behavior and so forth. So in that particular case, the court said, as a matter of discretion, I'm revoking the idea of doing all these things by phone, and you're all going to come here and stand in front of me and then see if you're going to say the same sort of things. But I think that's the sort of thing that the court can do on a case-by-case basis and, and hopefully on a routine basis where most people do routinely behave appropriately. Uh, the use of these technology matters can really um, take care of a lot of the problems. And I think one of the things we have did mention in our prior discussions, and I, I sympathize with, thankfully, none of my clients have to represent Chapter 7 debtors, but the part, part of the problem, of course, is that the amount of money that's, that's available in these cases for the small consumer cases for the attorney to to do his job is is really compared to the price you get in a big chapter 11 case i mean an entire chapter 7 case is supposed to run on basically an hour or two's worth of billing time in a big chapter 11 case and um you know you you really when there's no money available people start cutting corners so i think that's that's one piece of of the puzzle there that has to be kept in mind um Tara, perhaps you can uh, wrap up uh, this portion of the uh, discussion with some final comments. Sure. I, I think the, the recommendations are good ones. I like the idea of developing a best practice um, so that, again, the, the, the recommendation wasn't, wasn't to eliminate standing counsel or appearance counsel, but rather to have a, a best practices that um, attorneys could look to to make sure that they were fulfilling their duties. Obviously, this has enormous ethical implications, um, and and certainly the the rules of professional conduct apply here. And so, um, I think there are always these questions as to whether standing counsel or appearance counsel are meeting their ethical obligations and their their professional obligations under the the their whatever their rules of conduct are. And so, um, I, it's definitely been a tricky area. I think the the recommendations that are suggested. One of the nice things about these recommendations is they're not statutory changes. They're not something Congress has to do. They're something that we as a bankruptcy community can really um, focus on and, and could really develop ourselves. And so I think that's a really um, positive aspect of these particular recommendations is this is something that is within the bankruptcy community's ability to do um, going forward. Well, thank you very much, Tara, and thanks um, to Karen and Rick and Tara uh, for joining me today for this engaging discussion, and thank you for listening to this edition of the ABI podcast. This is more than 200 other uh, podcasts that can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. We all hope that you all have a very wonderful day. Thank you. 